0: Previously, on the Acts of the Apostles, I feel like saying that because every time we join the text, we we are really joining it in progress, just like you were watching a TV show. Last time, the intrepid Apostle Paul, (laughs) you remember where we left him? We left him right on a cliffhanger. That's how you you do that when you do movies, right? You always you, you leave it on a cliffhanger. And he was right in the midst of getting the stuffings beaten out of them by a very hostile Jewish crowd. Uh, some people said that Paul had brought a Gentile by the name of Trophimus into the temple, so that that uh, got them uh, very upset with him. Paul has faced uh, faced uh, violence, hostility across Asia Minor, Greece, Macedonia. But it always seems like he really gets into trouble when he gets to Jerusalem. It, I, whenever Paul and Jerusalem come together, it seems like it always blows up. There's always a plot to kill Paul coming out of Jerusalem, and this is no exception. I heard somebody say that statistically, and you've probably heard this before, statistically, we are most likely to get into a, a car accident within a mile of our home. Have you heard that? And so, uh, as someone has noted, what we all ought to do is park at least a mile away from our house, and then you can just walk the rest of the way. Um, Paul was Paul was at, on on his his home turf, if you will. Jerusalem was the was the home city of the Jews, and yet that's where he experienced the greatest trial. You and I will find the same to be basically true for us. I mean, yes, it's possible that God could call you to the mission field, you could end up thousands of miles away, and that might be where you would end up facing trial and tribulation. But for most of us, most of us, we are going to face hostility for our faith really close to home, just like a car accident. It's going to be your family, your extended family, your close friends, your neighbor. Your neighbor catches wind that you're Christian. Hopefully, he, he or she catches one that you're a Christian, and, uh, and, and maybe they don't like that. Maybe it's the people that you work with, but we will face hostility for our faith. We need to know how to share our faith when it is uh, that kind of a situation. So that's a big idea today. Be ready to witness for Jesus in hostile circumstances, and they are getting warmer each day as we go along. Have you noticed that? Things are are heating up. There are sort of four do's and don'ts that we have in our text that we're going to look at today. First of all, when it comes to sharing your faith, do trust God's good providence. Um, If you look now at verses 37 to 40, we have the stage being set. And if you look at it, you'll notice how everything is just so perfectly uh, situated. The Romans rescue Paul from the beating. All of Jerusalem's there. He, they carry him up these these stairways, uh, the stairway there to the fortress Antonio, to the barracks, and when he gets to the top of the stairs, he pauses, and Paul asks the tribune if he can speak to him. The choreography of this, if you had to choreograph it, if, if you or I Needed to plan this. I mean, we would need stagehands. We we would need a lot of stuff going on. But God has just brought this together. Paul, being a citizen of Tarsus and Cilicia, speaks Greek. That surprises the tribune because he has in mind that Paul is this rabble rouser from Egypt. Uh, Luke tells us about this guy it just so happens Josephus the historian also talked about this particular individual apparently he was a nut job as many of these people were <laughs> he had he had told people that if they amassed behind him uh, that he would lead them in this revolt against the Romans and that he would speak and as a prophet that the walls of uh, Jerusalem would fall down before him and then they would rush in and they would you know they'd kill off the Romans and all be good that's who this guy thinks Paul is. It says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out in the wilderness? And instead, uh, Paul speaks in this sort of very ar- articulate, I would imagine, this, this very fluent Greek, and, uh, and he says to him, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not that guy. I'm actually from Tarsus in Cilicia, which is no obscure city. Funny way of saying it, isn't it? It's a figure of speech when you say it's no obscure city, what he means to say by that is is sort of the opposite of being an obscure city. It's a very prominent city. Paul came from a place of, of great learning and wealth. It was a place of commerce. it was a place of universities, if you will. It, I don't know. you, you think of some place comparable um, in, in the u s and and it's not Great Bend, I'm just saying. <laughs> Nothing against great, Ben, and we have a wonderful two-year college, but it, it is a little more impressive than that, what Paul tells him. There just happens to be a large crowd there in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. There just happens to be a mob. They they just happen to have neatly assembled themselves and drawn in as close as they can possibly get to Paul. Paul just happens to have been rescued by this tribune and these centurions, and they just happen to have carried him all the way up the steps and set him right at the top, overlooking this entire crowd such that he is then able to address them. Do you see the hand of God in that? Isn't it perfect? Like, Paul could not have paid for this kind of a a venue and and the chance to speak that he got. When we talk about God's providence, what we're talking about, and I know we've talked about God's providence before, but uh, it bears repeating. We are saying that God is in control of all things, that God rules over all things, that nothing happens outside the sovereign purposes of God's will. All of these random-looking fragments that just so happen to coincident... See, we use that term, don't we? Coincidental. That's true. Coincidence literally means they're happening kind of all at the same time. So they are coincidences in that sense, but it is by the sovereign working of God. It's by His providence. God's providence is, as many theologians have said, a pillow on which the child of God lays his or her anxious head. But how much more is that the case when you're in a hostile situation? I think we need to get comfortable with the idea of God's providence. I know just this week I've been talking uh, with someone and and some people go through really hard times and it's hard for them to see God's providence. And it's like, do you really want to believe that God's in control even over that? that hard thing that the person is going through. And it's, we, yes, we ha- it is a comfort to know that even the hard things that we go through are not outside of God's sovereign will and power. We are not at the mercy of Satan, though Satan works his work. We are not uh, at the mercy of the will of man, though men will and do and, and commit all kinds of, of, of heinous acts. We're not at the, at the whim of blind fate. We are in the hands of a sovereign God. God is in heaven. The scripture says he does what he pleases, and we are to trust that. We, we can trust that. When things are hard, when we're going into situations where we're trying to bear the name of Christ, we know, as Paul did, that God is in control. So that's, that's the first do of sharing your faith in hostile situations second part, now this is the longest of the four points, so um, it covers most of the text, but do speak truth in a relatable way. How many would think that Paul would just be kind of a take it or leave it sort of guy? By now, maybe you know differently, but sometimes Paul can be very strong in the way he words things. He can kind of be like a grizzly bear. And so we have this idea that Paul just, you know, he's just one of those uh, take no prisoners kind of guy. The truth of the matter is and hopefully by now at this point in the book of Acts you've come to see this Paul very much tries to adapt his speaking to catch people where they are so that they can relate he's a very relatable speaker look at how he starts out here in chapter 22 verse 1 he calls them brothers and fathers so that's an engaging way that's saying hey you're my brothers you're my, you're my fathers he's speaking to them in that very very uh, yeah relatable way then in verse 2, it says he spoke to them in Hebrew. How much, how much better could he do than that? Paul was, was multilingual. He was able to speak a number of languages. But this is, this is Jerusalem. And the language, you know, you speak about, you've heard the term lingua franca. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that. Lingua franca. It's the language of the day. Like It used to be French. Now today it was, it's English. You can go anywhere in the world and people communicate in English to get by. Uh, th- that for the Jewish people was Hebrew or Aramaic, probably more specifically the Aramaic version of Hebrew. But Paul addresses them, and that's relatable. It's so clear that it's relatable because the minute he, he starts to speak to them, it says it got quiet. And just, So just as we go through and look at, at some of these verses, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but as we look at some of this stuff, just pay attention and look for how Paul is trying to connect. He says in verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So recall that his enemies had said that he was was a person who was against the temple, and he was against the people. He was against their place and their law. That was the charge against him, and they said, well, he brought Trophimus into the temple. But actually, you know, Paul can say to them, look, I'm not some Johnny-come-lately. I'm not some, you know, weirdo from out there somewhere. I'm like you. I'm, Paul could boast. Paul did have a habit of t- at times of boasting in certain things. In Philippians, Paul makes the, the the bold boast that he is the Hebrew of Hebrews. Reminds me of uh, of uh, of an old uh, Jewish comedian um, whose name just suddenly left me. But uh, his big thing he used to go uh, that he used to say, "I'm super Jew. I'm super Jew." That was his that was his moniker. He, he had dubbed himself that. And Paul could kind of come in that way. And say the same thing, he could say, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm a Jew of Jews, I, I'm, I, I was a Pharisee. Paul literally studied, you know, they, they, he, he was being charged by being against the place, meaning Jerusalem. Paul was brought up there. Yeah, he was born in Tarsus and cilicia but he was brought up there. Under the tutelage of Gamaliel Gamaliel to this day is still a known name among early Jewish scholars. His name has, has come down through the you know, through the annals of history that's the kind of uh, the pedigree that Paul has and as they listen to him, I'm sure that for a lot of the crowd, you know he went from being this weird troublemaker guy to suddenly seeming educated and relatable. How many of you have ever ever had this experience with like a politician there's somebody for me it was Jesse Ventura I can that's one clear example I can think of lived in Minnesota I never liked Jesse Ventura I'll just say that I just never thought much of his politics but you know you you hear somebody like and you're thinking wow that guy's got some weird crazy ideas whatever it might be but then you find out oh he was a Navy SEAL or at least he was close to the Navy SEAL. There's some debate about that because the Navy SEALs hadn't officially been called the Navy SEALs when he was in. But anyway, he served his country with honor is what I'm trying to say. And you know what I'm saying? You hear a politician, you're like, I don't like anything about him." And then they go, oh yeah, he, he, he's a career military guy, served in war. And you're like, oh, okay. I still don't agree with him. But all at once, you sort of back off a little bit. You're like, well, okay. Obviously, he doesn't hate the country. I should at least listen to him. And this is where Paul has them. Then he talks about his zeal for protecting their faith and protecting the temple, which he saw at the time, he thought that the Christian religion was a threat. If they were beating him for being a follower of Christ, how much more had he excelled and exceeded them in his anger and hostility toward the church? He tells of how he persecuted them, and we know this. He bound men and women and sent them to prison. He worked in league with the very high priests and and rulers of the people, the Sanhedrin. Now, 25 years or so has passed by, but in that time, uh, the way it's worded, it would appear... That the very people who gave him letters to go to Damascus and other places, other foreign cities to, you know, to root out the, the Christians, they're there. They're there. They're part of the, the, the accusation against him. And yet they can verify that they sent him with letters to do those very things. Paul had street cred. He wasn't a stranger. He wasn't some self-styled prophet from Egypt. He was a son of the city and arch persecutor of the way. In every way, Paul, in essence, could say to them, I am just like you, except I am more like you than you are like the you that you put yourself forward as. Because... because you're all sitting here thinking we're super Jew, and Paul's like, No, I'm super Jew. I I've outdone all of you. I've gone further, been trained better, know the drill better than you, done more things, have more, you know, things on my CV than you have on yours. That's what Paul is able to say. And then he tells them of his vision. He relates his conversion, which we get to we get to go over his conversion several times in the book of Acts, because he'll come back and retell it. This is one of those. Uh, retellings we know the story he was on his way to Damascus he had letters he was going to persecute the church in Damascus he was going to drag brothers and sisters back to Jerusalem to be put on trial and on his way there he has his historic vision it comes in the middle of the day the sun is high in the sky everything have you ever turned your headlights on in, in the middle of the day and what did you immediately notice when you turned your headlights on it made no difference whatsoever. Made no difference because it's, it's the bright light of day. But in that bright light of day, as he relates this, the, the, this, this light from heaven, brighter than the noonday sun, shone down on him such that it was utterly noticeable, to not, not only to Paul because he was blinded by it, but the people around saw the light and they heard the sound of the voice, though they couldn't make out what was being said. And Paul, then Saul, heard the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you know the rest of the story. Um, Saul says, who are you, Lord? By this point in the telling of the story, I think Paul has them. Uh, not, not completely over to his side, but I think he is relating with them on such a level that they are leaned in, that they are giving him now some of the benefit of the doubt. They're thinking, well, what would I do if I had a vision? Wouldn't I have to at least pay attention and give that, um, that some credit? If they hated and mistrusted the way, how much more had he hated it? And yet, that, this great Pharisee had turned on a dime. That's what he's telling them. Can you imagine how powerful that is? To this day, if, if you look at evidences for the Christian faith, what would be the number one evidence for the Christian faith? Our, our, our chief apologetic. It's the empty tomb, right? But coming in a close second, if you're, if you're trying to bring proof and say this is how we know, the conversion of the Apostle Paul to this day is still one of the strongest evidences because he was going as hard, I mean, you, you couldn't create a fictional character like Paul because nobody would believe you because he was so totally the one way and then what he tells the, the people is effectively, hey, I was, I was that, but then I saw Jesus and it turned me around. This vision from heaven would be a serious thing for them to consider who would who would disobey a voice from heaven how 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 would they you know they they're listening to this and thinking yeah okay i i get that this this makes sense and then paul gets to the name of jesus he said and i answered who are you lord and he said to me i am jesus of nazareth whom you are persecuting you imagine just how powerful this testimony would have been for this once rabid fanatical, anti-Christian, persecuting anybody who named the name of Jesus. And he, and he hears Jesus' own voice speaking to him, identifying himself, saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Those around, you know, and when we say it was a vision, again, when we normally think of a vision, what do we, what do we picture? We picture something happening within the person's own mind, right? Like they see, you see it, it seems to be there but nobody around you would see it. Like, like, uh, like if you wake up in the middle of the night and you, and you see something in the room, kind of a sleep disturbance, the good, the good news is that if your spouse wakes up, they don't see the same thing. If they do wake up and see the same thing, you're in trouble. But, but, but no, the, the people with him, even though they didn't make it out, they couldn't see through the bright light to see Jesus standing there. And they couldn't make out the words that were spoken, but they, but they heard the sound of it. They heard, they heard the, you know, the sound waves striking their ears. They witnessed this. Jesus tells Paul to go and wait in Damascus. And then Paul relates the... the the thing with Ananias. This is still the relatability part. I know there's a lot in here. It's harder for me than you in a way, uh, but but look at just again. Think about this relatability thing and look at what he says about Ananias because we've already covered Ananias before. But Paul Paul very much shapes what he says about Ananias. He says and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews. Who lived there? Do you, do, do you see the relatability part? He's like, yeah. Not only was I, uh, you know, a, a Pharisee, a Jew, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, but the guy that God sent, the one that Jesus sent to me, he was he was a man who lived according to the law. He's well spoken of all by by all the Jews there. Paul is tailoring his message so that everything they hear is relatable. It it it's as he couldn't tell this story any more kosher then he tells it. It absolutely falls on receptive ears in that way. Paul related how God restored his sight through this very Jewish Ananias guy. You'll notice that Ananias um, refers to the God of their fathers, has called me and sent me to you. And then he mentions Jesus as the righteous one. That is a very, very Old Testament way, a very prophetic Old Testament way of referring to the Messiah. How could they argue with that? I think up to this point, they are truly gripped by the story. Paul has shaped his language. He's, he's spoken literally in their language. He's referred to the Messiah by a term that they would understand. He's mentioned the law. He's mentioned all of these things to make it as absolutely approachable and relatable as he could. When we share our testimonies, do you think we can do the same thing? I think this kind of gives us permission, doesn't it? I mean, when we share the gospel, we want to share the gospel. We want to make sure that the gospel is in there. But it, as far as approachability, when we're talking to someone, yes, we trust that, that the providence of God is at work. We trust that the Holy Spirit's at work, that the Holy Spirit's opening hearts, that he's giving them ears to hear. And yet, at the same time, it is not wrong to try to approach a person and, and, and get common ground to build bridges. That's worth doing. So the providence of God and being faithful to the gospel doesn't exclude the idea that that we want to do all in, in our part, on our part, to actually speak in a way that's relatable. All right, thirdly, do deliver the punchline. Do deliver the punchline. Now that I have you convinced of how slick Paul is, you know, and being able to craft this and be relatable in all he says. Here's the flip side. After he's built the bridges and gotten them, really leaned in and listening to them, he does, in fact, deliver the punchline. Jesus, the one they crucified, is risen, powerful, alive. He is the righteous one. He is, he, he is able to speak to, to his people even today. He's shared, he has shared with them that it is by calling upon the name of Jesus that their sins can be forgiven, right? Because Ananias said to him, rise, you know, call upon the name of the Lord uh, you know, and, and, and wash your sins away. He gets to the core elements of the gospel. Now, before I come back to the punchline, though, note that he d- what he does in verses 17 through 20. Remember that um, they were beating him because he had supposedly defiled the temple and he'd spoken against the place, all right, you're with me? That's, that's the setup. Now look at these verses. He says, when I'd returned to where? Jerusalem. Okay, that's important. When I'd returned to, this is 25 years previous that he's talking about. When I'd returned to Jerusalem and was praying where? In the temple, the very thing that, that he supposedly had defiled by bringing Trophimus to. I fell into a trance and saw him, he's talking about Jesus, saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So what's Paul getting at here? Paul loved the temple. Paul loved Jerusalem in zeal for all those things he had approved of the lynch mob that had stoned Stephen. He was a mirror image of them. He even had blood on his hands every bit as much as they did. But here was the punchline. The one he has identified as Messiah tells him that the Jewish people there in Jerusalem at the temple will not receive his testimony. Paul's like, wait, look at all I've done. Look, They know. The, he, it's almost like he's trying to convince Jesus that he's wrong." Like, no, 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 I mean, think of how I'm, they're, they're going to relate to me because I did all these bad things, and they know that, so I'm going to be a really powerful testimony, and they're going to they're listen to me, and Jesus goes, "Huh,? uh No, and so he's basically telling them 25 years later, you know, here I am putting all this effort into getting re- to relate to you and get you to listen to me, but Jesus told me 25 years ago that you're not going to receive it. You're going to be obstinate. You're going to be stubborn. You're going to be closed to the truth. And then he pulls all the pins on the grenades he's wearing. Yeah, that's because you can see it. Like, he, he had to know. It says, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Boom, right? They were they, You know, they'd been stoning him, or, or were attempting to stone him for bringing a Gentile into the temple. And now he tells them that their Messiah the righteous one, has appeared to him in that very place at the temple in Jerusalem, told him effectively, these Jews aren't going to listen to you, so go to the Gentiles and share the gospel with them. Can you imagine how aggravating that was? Do you see the punchline? I mean, kind of, you know, Paul has gone to so great lengths to build this relatability thing, and, then he, and and then he turns around and he does this. How do you explain that? It's like the guy that gets pulled over for drunk driving. Thank you, Scott. You gave me this. Mhm. Not cuz Scott was drunk driving. He he always stays at home when he's drunk, so he's fine. I'm messing with him. That's sorry. It's like the guy that gets pulled over for drunk driving and the cop says, okay, I want you to walk a straight line and the guy walks a perfectly straight line and comes back and he's like, okay, say the alphabet backwards and he says the alphabet backwards perfectly and stands on one foot, closes his eyes, touches his nose with his finger, goes through all of the sobriety tests and it's just perfect and the cop's like, wow, oh, wow, that was really actually super good and the guy goes, well, yeah, and it's that much better when you consider how much I've had to drink. Um, that's what Paul's kind of done here, isn't it? He's gone through all of this. He's gotten them listening. He's gotten them, you know, like Jew of Jew and the Hebrew of Hebrews and the Pharisee of Pharisees and they're, they're really, and then he just, he just outs himself and tells them that Jesus sent him to the Gentiles. What do we do that? What, what do we make of that? What does that say to us? We're not, we are free to be relatable when we, when we try to witness to people. Not only, I mean, we're encouraged to be relatable. But it doesn't deliver us from having to deliver the punchline. We have to tell people. We have to tell people of the gospel, which means it's a gospel for sinners. People are lost. They're, they're lost without Christ. They're on their way to hell. They, they, they are going to reap what they have sown. And somewhere in there, there's gonna be hard truths. And they may not listen. So that's the, that brings us to the fourth and final. Don't expect to avoid the rage. Don't expect to avoid the rage. Do you think Paul saw it coming? Yeah, I really kind of think he had to have seen it. Uh, it says, up to this word, they listened to him. So see, he was being effective. We know that, that, that he had been relatable and, and with, with everything they were just leaning in listening to him. They, they had, but then, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. You see, to promote the idea, think about what Paul had just said to them. Effectively, he had said, the Jewish Messiah, your Messiah, the righteous one, has come. You killed him he's risen, he's alive, he spoke to me, he said that you were going to be obstinate and not listen, and so he said, in effect, to take this kingdom to them, to the Gentiles, bypassing you altogether. Just the the very notion for the Jewish people, it wasn't impossible to, to believe that Gentiles could be included, but the only way for that to happen was them for them to be completely become Jewish in every way, shape, and form. They had to completely adhere to all aspects of the law. They had to submit to circumcision and, and washings and baptisms and all the like, but the idea that the gospel of the kingdom of Messiah would be given to the Gentiles without them becoming Jewish, I mean, that was just absolutely the most... It was the most heinous thing Paul could have said. Paul lives to tell, tell the tale, but he only lives to tell the tale because the Romans intercede, and they save him, they whisk him away at the last minute, but the rage is there. Think about what, how that must have felt for Paul. We think that Paul was impervious and that, that he just could, could handle it all without, without even any feeling, but I, I, I think honestly... To hear his own people there in that place raging against him, yelling that he was unworthy, that he was worthy of nothing but but death, had to be painful. Paul wasn't a masochist. And this is true for us on on a very personal level as well. As a follower of Christ, you are to be his witnesses where God places you. And yeah, you want rapport, you want bridges, and you try, and you go to great lengths to do that, but at some point, sooner or later, you have to pull the pin, and you have to be honest, you have to be clear, and you may find that the response to that is not one that you would hope for. The response may be rage and rejection. It's also true collectively for us as a church. It's not, you know, when, when we apply these passages, it's not just to us as little individual people out there in the community. It's also for us collectively as the people of God in this place. And we may find as a church, you know, that, that, that yeah, can, can we be relatable? Is, are we allowed as a church to be relatable? Seems like the last fifty years of Christianity, we've done nothing but try to be relatable, and that's okay. It's okay that we don't have a pipe organ up here. You know, people probably, for the most part, can't relate to a pipe organ anymore. They can relate to the guitar and the drums. I'm sorry to someone. I'm sorry about the pipe organ thing. If I have offended any pipe organists, uh, I'm, I'm truly sorry. But. Yeah, we, relatability is great. We want to be relatable. We want to speak their language. We want, if, if we're using big words, which I'm totally against, uh, we, we simplify, right? We bring it down. We make it. We, we speak in a language so that people understand it. But at some point at the end of the day, our job is to tell them the gospel. And that may not always be received. In fact, we may endure rage, but that's just, that's just how it is. At the end of the day, they have a right to hear, don't they? They have a right to hear. They have a right to reject it. They have a right to get angry if they want to, but we have an obligation to tell the gospel. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, if you're listening to this online or something and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, we just have to tell it like it is. And I hope we've been relatable. I hope you understand the words that have been spoken. But the truth of the matter is there is this thing called the gospel. It is good news. But it comes with, it comes with you know, part of the package is accepting some things you might not want to believe. You are not okay as you are. A- apart from Christ, the Bible says you are without God, without hope in the world. The Bi- Bible says that, that, that you're lost in your sin. And so we preach to you that that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, sinners. And And that's critical that you understand your sin, that you understand before God that your righteousness is like filthy rags. There's nothing you've done. The wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve, and that's hard. That's hard, but what you need to hear with that is that God sent his son Jesus to die for those sinners that all who repent and believe in him would have eternal life. We believe that you have a right to hear that. We believe that we have an obligation to preach that to you. Let's pray.